Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do. Good morning, everybody. Thank you to be on the podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Uh, today, we are going to discuss uh, the school returning and all the challenges in this uh, period of COVID-19, and in particular for children that are younger than 12, that uh, cannot be vaccinated. So the issue of contact tracing is going to be key for a successful and, and healthful school returning. And uh, let, let's go directly into the, uh, the discussion. First of all, let me ask you to introduce yourself because this is partly a sound-only podcast and people need to associate uh, uh, your names and your voice. So let's start with Anna. Hi, I'm Anna Bento. I'm an assistant professor at the Indiana School of Public Health and I'm a mathematical modeler of infectious diseases. Thank you, Brea. Hi, my name is Bria Perry. I am a professor of sociology at Indiana University, and I study social networks and health and illness. Thank you. Margaret. Hello, my name is Margaret Frankhauser. I'm the director of aging services at JSI, and I serve as a public health consultant. And during the first year of COVID, I served as a consultant and lead for congregate setting outbreaks. So just GSI stands for? John Snow Institute, which is a public health consulting firm based in Boston. Okay, thank you. Andy? Yes, Andy Rocks. I'm Professor Emeritus in the School of Public Health and Department of Healthcare Organization and Policy at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I've had the good fortune of working in the field of training the public health workforce dealing with infectious diseases. And then after my retirement, this opportunity came along to assist the Alabama Department of Public Health with case investigations and contact tracing. And I've been doing that since uh, July of this past year. Great. So let's start with you, Andy. Alabama yes. is the state also of Tuskegee. Is the state of, uh, you know, where, you know, there has been a, a huge, uh, uh, distrust uh, for government, etc. There is a large African American population that has a, a you know a bad record history of uh, with with public health in the state. But on the other hand, we hear also that uh, you know there are some uh, practical, uh, very uh, uh, simple issues of access, which makes that the poor population cannot necessarily access. Uh, uh, testing or, uh, or contact tracing. So what do you think is the main major challenge in, in Alabama now? Uh, presently, I think you landed on the primary one or what we see as, as number two. Number one would be the, uh, an inadequate set of resources to conduct uh, case investigation and contact tracing re relative to the population of the state. We're doing the very best we can, but we would need a small army to do it at the, at the pace uh, that needs to be accomplished. For example, we're averaging about, with the Delta variant, almost 4,000 cases per day, and we're investigating a very small fraction of that. Margaret, you would say, you know, you also are, have been acting in a red state, but a different demographic composition. Did you meet the same issues as Andy has been discussing? 
Probably not at the same scale. Because New Hampshire is a very small state geographically, um, it has does not have a very significant um, community-wide public health presence. There are only two municipalities with public health departments, Manchester and Nashua. The rest of the state um, operates under a town model, so towns are generally in control of health issues. That gave us, in some ways, an advantage because the state could serve as the central hub for information gathering, for contact tracing, in case investigation. And in general, the Department of Public Health is well-trusted in the state of New Hampshire. However, part of the state, a significant geographic portion, is highly rural, so people have long distances to travel. Initially, getting tested was a concern, having access to testing. Uh, but, but the way the state structured it from the very beginning was to pull all resources into one place, literally one place. So case investigation, contact tracing, and the unit that I worked with, which was um, considered the congregate investigations unit, dealt with schools, nursing homes, any congregate sort of facility, including businesses. All of those were contained, and we, we actually had in-person access to one another. Of course, socially distanced, we used masks, but we were able to very quickly coordinate activities and um, engage others. And Trust was not one of the major concerns for the state of New Hampshire. It was really getting access to testing and information for people. Great. So, uh, Anna, do you you want to chime in at this point about uh, those two experiences? Two red states, two different issues. So it's not uh, the red that's the issue. Yeah, I mean, in our research in Indiana, we're finding that Uh, Black and Hispanic Americans and people who are experiencing economic precarity are less willing to participate in contact tracing and quarantining um, than their more advantaged counterparts. Um, And they're really primarily economic reasons for this. So people who don't have insurance or who otherwise are unable to access health care, for those folks knowing about your COVID-19 status Um, doesn't really improve your ability to achieve a better outcome. So, you know, there's sort of a why do I need to know sort of attitude. And then we also find that those groups are less likely to want to know their COVID-19 status because knowing would mean that they have to quarantine and would then have to miss work. So we're finding that economic hardship really presents pretty difficult choices that make testing, treatment, and isolation intractable for a lot of American families. So even if the program is in place, it may be less accessible or less successful in uh, in some of these uh, under-resourced communities. Yeah, I, I, I will agree 100% with what Bray has said. Uh, we've seen this not just in the U.S., but also in all other countries, really. Uh, the issue of compliance is merely driven um, by economic incentives or lack thereof. So, of course, as uh, Andy mentioned, trust is sometimes an issue. And, of course, in the U.S., historically, we know that has, there's a reason for the lack of trust. However, what we've seen uh, particularly is really that lack of incentive and lack of infrastructure to allow people to test and then quarantine, self-isolate, uh, and actually not lose their paycheck uh, and not be you know, in a precarious situation. 
I'd like to add one thing that uh, Brea introduced, and we certainly saw this with schools in terms of contact tracing. Economically disadvantaged families also tended to live in much smaller housing units. So when a child became a case, it was virtually impossible for others in that family to maintain distance from them. And we called that continuous exposure. And what that meant is that sequentially, the quarantine would extend for a parent, which meant that they were out of work. If they, if they behaved uh, under quarantine, they were out of work for an extremely long period of time. And we saw compliance just fall off dramatically because of the realities of the housing situation and the fact that they, they desperately needed their paycheck. I mean, in this case, uh, does any state introduce some uh, economic incentive, uh, guarantee uh, you know, the salaries of people who need to uh, be quarantined? Uh, what, what's the situation in all the states that are represented here? In Alabama, there's no incentive, at least state supplied incentive. In New Hampshire, apart from the usual federal um, processes that were in place, there were no additional incentives. And I, I think it's important to add that the population that was greatest at risk also tended to be classified as essential workers. So they were expected to show up for work. They were nursing assistants. They were grocery store clerks. They were garbage collectors. They were people who were expected to be at work even in the midst of a pandemic. So the privileges that were afforded to others were generally not made available to them. Agreed. Yeah, I I really second that notion as well. And I, I do worry on the whole about how contact tracing programs are implemented and distributed across the country, given the lack of social safety net that's provided by government. So history tells us that interventions that are less effective or less accessible to lower status groups will widen health disparities. And there's another problem too, if, if we're talking about contact tracing um, programs in schools, schools that serve less affluent communities typically don't have the personnel or the resources or the necessary expertise to contact trace and test large numbers of their students. So you have uh, rich schools in largely white neighborhoods throwing money at COVID-19 to the benefit of these wealthier communities. So if you take sort of what we know about contact tracing in schools and then sort of more broadly, um, so like this poor or non-existent implementation in under-resourced schools that serve black and brown students, and then also lower willingness to be tested and to quarantine among parents at these same schools, it's likely that these programs could actually exacerbate um, COVID-19 health disparities as an unintended consequence. And that's not to say that we shouldn't do it, but rather that we need really robust government programs, especially in lower resource communities, to even the playing field. Um, that's, I think, exactly the sort of policies or programs that you were talking about, um, Alfredo, that we don't see on the state level. You see like, you know, small NGOs and nonprofits who are engaging in this kind of work, providing economic incentives for testing, but it's not widespread and it should be. Because what I'm hearing here is that, uh, well, there is the issue of distrust. I mean, uh, Andy talked about it, but even uh, in Alabama, 
the main issue is structural. It's how to access, how to guarantee that parents can keep living, uh, that uh, family won't uh, be in, in trouble uh, to, to get food and, and to keep their work, etc. This seems to be the major uh, challenge, the major obstacle for a successful uh, contact tracing and uh, control of the pandemic while school reopens. Would you agree with that? Or I would. I would say we have one other concern or issue in, in Alabama, uh, and that's the issue of languages. We have a multilingual workforce conducting case investigation and contact tracing and can speak to the variety of languages that are spoken by residents of Alabama. The issue that we ran across in several instances, I don't know how many because we didn't keep track of that, was that the recipient of a call would react negatively to the accent that one of our investigators was using. They might be, uh, many of whom were international students, particularly the, this particular task was very popular among international students. And we met some resistance uh, that we've somehow overcome to some extent, but not completely. And that contributed negatively to the trust issue. One other reluctance about contact tracing. We found that many families would not identify members of the household uh, who were present or, or who live in the household uh, concerning a case. This situation that just, you know, Andy just said, not everybody will report all their contact, which is kind of is normal in some ways, but to, to some extent. But how how does your does it make your work complicated? How can you assess the impact of contact tracing and at the end the number of lives that have been saved because that's the objective of contact tracing, right? Yes. So you really hit it on the nail, right? So uh, the kind of work that we do as as infectious disease modelers uh, and epidemiologists is that we're really used to messy, dirty data. So in general, mathematically speaking, in a perfect world, uh, with an R0 of three, let's say, if we go back to the early stages of COVID-19, you basically would have to trace all of the contacts before they become infectious for it to actually actively reduce the reproductive number uh, below one. So now we're in a stage where in the middle of the, the pandemic, at the very best, you do random tracing because of one they mentioned uh, about, you know, an, an ability to kind of trace all of the contacts, bias in recall, because we don't always remember who we contacted. It's not really that kind of unwillingness to report your dad or your sister or your partner, uh, but more so this idea of biases in recall is, is a huge problem. Also the fact that we haven't mentioned yet COVID-19 transmission is highly driven by asymptomatic cases. What does that mean? It means that oftentimes, even if I become infected and I have symptoms, I might not even understand who might have been the person that potentially infected me. So all of those uncertainties, so these are not necessarily uh, weaknesses of contact tracing, but they are kind of particularities and traits. We'll have very different types of spread. 
Yeah, there's another element to students that is unique, and that is their age. So a contact tracer will not be talking to a 10-year-old on the phone. They'll be talking to the parent. And the parent has not been at the school or on the bus or walking home with the students. So the, their knowledge of who the actual contacts are is limited. In New Hampshire, we, we simply had to deputize school nurses to do that portion for us, to help us identify where a student traveled and who they were with. And of course, we relied on assigned seating and things of that nature, but that required quite a bit of structural design to reduce the number of potential exposures. But clearly, parents don't know everyone that their child interacts with during a period of communicability, and that became a challenge. Of course. And, I, you know, this, this idea of random contact tracing, uh, you know, I, I like the idea very much. Brea, do you think it has chances to be successful in, in populations that are disadvantaged, marginalized, that, uh, you know, have already an opposition to contact tracing in general if it's done randomly? I don't know that I can directly answer that. I mean, I think that you may potentially still have problems with willingness to participate because you can't force people to participate. Maybe if it's random, it's seen as less directed and therefore, you know, you would see greater willingness. Um, I think my, my bigger concern about some of the comments that Margaret and Anna were making is about if you sort of layer on top of this, um, the, the ways that people in society tend to interact, the sort of broader patterns of interaction. So you have uh, people that are of the same race or ethnicity or the same socioeconomic status are more likely to interact with one another. So once you have an outbreak in one of these communities, it's much more likely to spread in that community and stay in that community, right? Um, so perhaps something like these, you know, random testing or contact tracing programs in those kind of communities that we know are vulnerable would be successful. But again, only if we can get people to participate in them, right? And for that, you have to reduce some of the structural barriers. And Brea, we, we haven't talked so much of stigmatization. Can you, can you explain why people would feel stigmatized of, of being, you know, tested positive for COVID-19, which, you know, is the pandemic? I mean, it's what's in the air now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, anytime there's a perception of p potential um, personal responsibility, you're going to see high levels of stigma. And I think there are a lot of people who feel that uh, people who get COVID are not protecting themselves, right? They're not engaging in preventative behavior. They're not mask wearing. And of course, all of this is layered over with uh, political partisanship. Um, and so you know, I, I think that um, stigma is really problematic, and we find in our data that it's another reason why racial and ethnic minorities um, are, are less likely to participate in contact tracing programs. So I, I completely agree yeah. with that. We don't really think about it that way, but there is this element of shame, and Bria explained it very well, is this idea of Nowadays, if I were to get COVID, it means that perhaps I did something that I shouldn't have. Uh, but the reality is that we know the vaccine is not perfect, uh, which means that even if you are protected and even if you wear uh, your mask and social distance, 
there's always a chance because these elements only reduce the probability. They're not bulletproof. So in this context, and to have an idea of the extent of the opposition or obstacles, etc., uh, how? what's your perspective on what's going to happen with this uh, school reopening? Are we doomed to see, uh, you know, a outbreaks in school all over the country or, or is the opposition too small to actually uh, have a, a huge impact? My sense is that we're going to see a dramatic rise in cases and in fact we've already seen that and we'll see many more outbreaks, not isolated cases but clusters of cases building once again primarily among the unvaccinated, but as Anna said, none of our mitigation efforts are bulletproof, so we will see it um, also extend into the vaccinated community. So I, I think at some level, this is inevitable. Yeah, so if I may just uh, add to that, so we all know now there's variants of concern popping up. Uh, which further creates a, a higher probability of, of infection uh, for all the things that we've mentioned already. Um, but also earlier on in the pandemic, uh, kids were not really getting in, infected simply because schools were closed uh, and they were actually reducing their exposure tremendously, right? So now uh, with all of these new things, uh, variants that are more uh, infectious, or not necessarily that, but more transmissible, um, is creating now this very interesting kind of like hot spots, which kind of relate to all of the things Bria said, right? These communities that all of a sudden uh, are at higher risk um, simply because of the way schools are or because there's lack of staff that allows for them to be safer. So I think it's a question of safety. It's a question of infrastructure a question of information. So information is also key. Uh, so th there's a lot of components that allow this to go tremendously wrong. Uh, but those, knowing all of those components allow us to perhaps try and mitigate all of the things that can go wrong. Um, as we know, this is likely to become endemic in the years to come, but perhaps that's subject to uh, another podcast, so I'm not going to go too much on that. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, think, I mean, do we still agree that if the, the, the child comes from a family that's all vaccinated and go to a school where the, the teacher is vaccinated, the situation is very different than uh, when there's no vaccine? I mean, and uh, potentially uh, uh, the, the, the duration of this pandemic is going to be largely dependent on how fast we get to a, a, an overall vaccination rate. Uh, do we agree on that? Yeah. So, we do. But I have one thing. Herd immunity is a pipe dream that only, only exists in mathematical and theoretical models. Uh, so I, I just wanted to leave know, that there. Anna, you're talking to a historian. I know all the pandemics of the past, they used to disappear because of herd immunity. I mean, and there's no one that has lost forever or even many years or even many months. So, so this story of the endemic, et cetera, and, and, and the myth of the herd immunity, I don't buy it as a historian, not as an expert for today's COVID-19. It's a completely different story. 
But historically, you would not be able to show me a single example of that. Once that's once correct. It's all infected or all vaccinated. That's over until, you know, the new uh, generation of, of susceptible people, uh, you know, pile up, grow, uh, the, uh, accumulate, and then there is- That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so, so Andy, are we doomed or not? I mean, wh what's your view on that? My concern in, in Alabama about the surge in cases among school-aged children is that they're going to be grossly underreported. In our state, it's voluntary if a school system reports information they have, so it's sporadic. Uh, also, a colleague is leading an effort, a major effort, to uh, provide testing services in K through 12 throughout the state, and there's been very little uptake in that by any major systems, maybe two or three or four in the state and a few private schools. So my concern is we won't really know unless we follow the information about hospitalizations, pediatric hospitalizations and so forth. And like others in our state, the hospitalizations are plateauing as the local press reported, perhaps not because there aren't cases of COVID, but because they simply don't have any more capacity to handle them. Brea, we're getting to the end of this. I, I'm going to give you the last word because uh, as you said, you know, poor public health can actually increase inequalities. And that's a real issue because the, the inequities of the, uh, of the way this pandemic has hit our society is probably the most striking and the most revolting aspect of it. So if there was one thing you know that we should do in priority to to guarantee that uh, we don't exacerbate inequities but we we kind of reduce them what what would you say this thing is oh my gosh that's such a hard question um i, I think we have to uh i would say reduce the wealth gap if there's one thing that will have the largest impact on public health not only during the pandemic but also uh, all sorts of health disparities, I would say we have to reduce reduce economic inequality in the U.S. I think you got the last word. That is the right <laughs> point. I would totally agree with it. Thank you very much, everybody. We reached the end. I mean, it was a great discussion. I enjoyed meeting you all. And uh, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.